Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got a very special guest. They're all special, but some are more special than others. Uh, Jamel Bowie, New York Times columnist. Jamel is, for my money, the best New York Times columnist by quite a considerable margin, but also a guy who takes history very seriously. He's always reading uh, you know, the latest his- historical books and uh, papers and monographs and talking to historians. And by the way, he has a podcast with friend of the show, John Gantz, about uh, 1980s and 1990s th- uh, thrillers, which is quite interesting, called Unclear and Present Danger. So check that out. And we're having him on to talk about uh, some stuff that's occupied all of us on the podcast and in uh, in uh, his writings, basically talking about, you know, reclaiming the national institutions and the national history for, you know, the, the broad left and uh, invigorating our, uh, you know, national leadership and the, and the Democratic Party uh, to some degree. And, you know, talking about American history and uh, all kinds of stuff. As well as real proposals for how we could use these institutions to uh, emancipatory ends, you know, uh, lot, lots of good stuff in there. But before we get to that, we just got to do a quick reminder, as usual, that uh, this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine, my employer. So if you subscribe at the $10 a month tier and on Patreon, you'll get a, f- a free digital subscription to the magazine and a heavily discounted print subscription if you want it. If you subscribe at $5 a month, you get uh, access to our bonus episodes and the whole backlog of uh, well over 100 bonus episodes now and counting. But without any more delays, let's get to our interview with Jamel right now. Jamel, welcome to the program. Um, we wanted to have you on to talk about a number of things, but I think to start off... Um, is something that we uh, I've been writing about as well, uh, namely uh, sort of reclaiming the institutions of, um, you know, American society for, you know, for a more progressive, liberal, socialist, like the the broad left wing. Um, And so uh, can you first explain, you know, you're you have a you have a recent column on the Supreme Court. you know, what, what is your proposal, uh, for dealing with, you know, a clearly like reactionary and out of control Supreme Court? And, uh, you know, what's the sort of broader motivation behind it? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer the second question first because that leads into the answer. I answered the first question. Um, you know, I, one thing that I have come to really believe is that the broad American left, center left, really needs a vision of what the Constitution actually is. We have a critique, right? There's like a broad critique of all the problems with the Constitution, and I have like engaged in that critique quite a bit. But there there needs also to be a vision for what the document is actually trying to do. Conservatives have one. Theirs is, well, this is a, a document for natural rights and ordered liberty and for small government and for limited government and all those things often just mean sort of like the domination of various hierarchies. But that's like their that's like their propaganda pitch. That's the pitch. For my part, I think of the Constitution for all its flaws, for all its problems as being first and foremost a document for self-government. It's a document for the people of this country and every generation to figure out how they're going to live together and how they're going to engage in politics together and that the subsequent, not just amendments, but sort of subsequent interpretations that kind of act as de facto amendments um, are filling in the details of what that means. So in the very beginning, it was obviously very restricted. But even then, there is a vision for a much broader and more democratic and more egalitarian way of organizing the country. And as time has progressed, that that particular idea has been filled in a bit more and has even been has even been placed into or encoded into the Constitution itself, like a vision of a less hierarchical, more egalitarian society more politically equal society isn't really explicitly stated there, but you can see the details of it emerge from the various amendments and the various interpretations and so on and so forth. 
And so if that is what our if that is what ultimately the vision, the Constitution is like a, a document for self-government aimed towards a more egalitarian and politically equal society, uh, then, you know, the way to deal with something like the Supreme Court is a look to those uh, touches, those hints of egalitarianism within the Constitution and uh, think about the court in that context. Uh, and so in my in my column, right, like I talk about. Uh, Article three, section two, which kind of gives Congress a broad grant, uh, to, uh, shape the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction, which for all intents and purposes is just like everything the Supreme Court does, right? Like the, the Supreme Court doesn't spend much time on like maritime cases anymore. <laughs> um, uh, but it does spend a lot of time, uh, as the kind of the, the highest appellate court in the land. And there's no reason, right? There's no reason constitutionally, at least that like Congress couldn't just say, well, you know, you can't, these things you can't, uh, you can't pass judgment on, or if that seems too crazy, no reason Congress can't say, um, you know, if you want to overturn a duly passed law by, uh, Congress signed by the president, then you have to have seven votes or however many seats in the Supreme Court, you have to have a supermajority of votes to do so, or even a unanimous vote. Uh, and the, the principle there is that, the Constitution is a document for self-government. It's not a document for government, government by a bunch of judges, by a bunch of unelected, uh, unelected, you know, de facto policymakers. And so if we're going to give the court the power to or if we're going to allow the court to claim the power to review laws to ensure that they are in, in kind of rough correspondence with the text of the Constitution and understandings of it, then we can say, I think, fairly Listen, if the president of the United States elected by the people and the Congress elected by the people and four of your colleagues on the court all think that this thing is constitutional, then who are five people to say that it isn't? And if you really believe that it's constitutional, then it's incumbent on you five people to convince three or four more of your colleagues to join you. Otherwise, you can certainly issue an opinion saying it's constitutional, but that opinion is not binding. Um, but again, it goes back to the, the basic idea that like the, the, the point of all of this, the point of all of this is not to impose a particular, uh, you know, particular vision on the country. It's to enable the American people to develop the kind of vision they want to live under and to implement that thing. And to the extent the constitution doesn't facilitate that, then we should change the parts of the Constitution that facilitate that. And to the extent that the Constitution provides tools for us to facilitate it, we should use those tools. So another such tool is the the guarantee clause, which I think you've written about as well, of the Constitution, which kind of guarantees to the states a Republican form of government. No one's ever really figured out what that means, which is to me an opportunity to kind of figure out what it means. Yeah. <laughs> and to and to begin to um to build out a jurisprudence and build out a body of law that actually states what that means. But you kind of, you kind of see the point. It would certainly seem to suggest that, uh, if elections are totally fake in terms of your, you know, like legislature and the same party wins, no matter what the votes is, uh, are, which is the case basically de facto in a bunch of States, including Wisconsin, um, that's not really a Republican form of government as like the founders would have understood it. Like that's cheating. That's, that's right. a fake, you know, you're undermining the principles of, of, uh, you know, self-government and, you know, political competition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what about in this vein? What about the Senate? You have another column about the Senate that, that is a little bit more of an aggressive, um, you know, reform because like, one of the things that I think is important uh, about your about this sort of thinking, this program is to reinstill a certain set of like uh, a certain sense of confidence uh, in action among the elected officials, you know, people in Congress, like the way the Constitution is set up, like Congress is supposed to be the center of it. And it just is is totally uh, uh, gridlocked. Right. And what, like and it's 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 not just. Um, you know, it is about partisanship, polarization, 
but it's also this 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 sort of pathetic lack of self-respect among the the democratic members of congress that they just sit there and let the supreme court take their power and push them around without even you know doing anything to stop them but in the case of the Senate, you have like the, the most structurally unfair part of the Constitution as written, I would say, you know, that just grants, you know, ridiculously disproportionate power to tiny little states. And so you have, I'm convinced on this, but explained it to us. We need to repeal the 17th Amendment, which is the direct election of senators. But why is that? And, yeah. and what's your proposal there? Um, I just, uh, before I even get started, uh, it's, you know, when you're talking about the Senate, especially, this is a case where people are like, well, the founders, blah, blah, blah. I am at this point absolutely convinced that if you went back to 1787 to Philadelphia and you were like, listen, congratulations, the Constitution is still around 200 years from now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I'm black, whatever. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Uh, uh, <laughs> but. You're not going to believe this. There's a state. We call it California. You know, you're going to meet Mexicans one day. Chill out. Uh, and it has more people than continental Europe uh, right now. Uh, and uh, or as many, almost as many people as continental Europe. And that state only has two senators. I think they would lose their minds. I think they would actually find that, like, outrageous. Um, That's right. I mean, if you look at Madison, and the, sorry to interrupt, uh, Jamel, because this goes also to your proposal about increasing the House representatives to 600. Uh, when Madison was like, you know what, there's got to be a, at least, you know, this many representatives for a population of this many. Like, if you, if you projected our population, we would have like thousands of people in the House of Representatives. Right. Uh, they just had no idea. And they wouldn't have thought that a country this big could possibly be represented uh, by so few people. Right, right. right. Um, I, I think I think if they had, had knowledge of the sheer size of the country or how big it would be in population terms, that they would have not gone for equal state representation in the Senate. Like, I, I think that the numbers on that, as it were, in the convention were very slim. It wasn't like this overwhelming support for it. It was very closely divided. And I think that additional knowledge would have pushed some of the more recalcitrant small state delegates into sort of saying, well, you know, that's kind of outrageous. Um, But that's just, that's all speculation, but I've come to really be convinced of this precisely because the whole thing wasn't very principled at all. Um, I I, I think, (laughs) I think that additional information of that kind would have like really made a difference, but 17th amendment. So, uh, you know, I have this idea. The Senate is, you're right, like very plainly the most structurally unfair part of uh, American government was designed to sort of be that way, was designed explicitly to kind of be a lid on democratic impulses, sort of like one thing that the framers were all kind of like, you know, had bees in their bonnets about was the, um, you know, the proliferation of kind of like mass politics and mass democracy in the years between the convention in the end of the Revolutionary War, right? The famous example of this is the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, which is even by our standards, like very, very democratic. And this like drove these people insane, partially because like, you know, a lot of these states were trying to pass um, bills that would relieve debts, that would uh, curb speculation. And not incidentally, many of the framers were just like degenerate speculators. Um yeah. So there's like there's like material interest involved in this, but also just sort of the sense that it is not they're unhappy at the prospect of, you know, a bunch of like farmers and laborers and such having real influence on the making of national policy. So, you know, there's there's broad agreement that the House ought to be elected by popular means. Um, but there's also sort of like as a, as a, as a nod to fears of democracy, as a nod to the fact that you have a bunch of states with huge populations, but half those populations don't count because they're enslaved. Um, but the delegates from their states still want that to count in the scheme of representation. As down to a lot of stuff, you get the Senate where every state is represented equally. Um, and kind of by, 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 by splitting the legislature, first of all, 
Um, notably, Pennsylvania had a uni- unicameral legislature, legislature at the time. By creating a bicameral legislature and then giving the upper house a lot of power, right, to introduce bills, to block bills, to, you know, confirm officials, like a great deal of power, you can essentially really curb whatever kind of, you know, if they, if the house wanted to pass a paper money bill, the Senate would be there to kind of nip it in the bud. This is why Alexander Hamilton, right, proposes, um, senators who will serve uh, on good behavior, right? Like the idea of lifetime senators may sound insane to us, but when you think about what the purpose of the Senate was, it actually kind of makes sense. No one went for it, but it, it wasn't like an out of left field idea. Um, and so fast forward to the present, the Senate, you know, we got direct election of senators. Um, there's like this veneer of democracy on the Senate, but the Senate still kind of serves this purpose. Like it serves this purpose of like neutering um, legislation from the House, even if that legislation was well deliberated, right? Like was not pieced together in some sort of like hot headed rush, but as like the product of like real deliberation and real study and so on and so forth, the Senate can kind of just like nip it in the bud. Um, often on a, the whims of an individual person, like ironically, it's often not happening after like, you know, careful deliberation. It's happening because like one of the 100 divas just doesn't like it very much. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm clearly referencing Joe Manchin here, but this happens all the time. Uh, so uh, my guy, my like a broad idea for the Senate is it just needs to have less power over legislation, right? Like I kind of, this is like one part blue sky and actually like one part blue sky with an eye towards realism. Like what could I, how could you actually make this happen? And one thing I think you just have to concede is that as long as the U.S. is going to be a federated republic, federated democracy, we're going to have an upper house that represents the states. Um, now, what that means is like up in the air. Like, there's nothing about state representation that requires an upper chamber to have this much power. And that's kind of like my starting point. And so, the first step for me is actually to rip away the veneer of democracy, right? To kind of make, like, return the Senate in some sense to its, to its original status as a chamber that represents the states, which means no more direct election. Elections happen through state legislatures, and they decide. But kind of the, the trade-off for removing very explicitly the more democratic component of the Senate is to just eliminate the Senate's ability to really influence legislation. I think what I wrote is that the Senate would be able to amend, but that's kind of it. And even then, its powers of amendment would be sort of like time-limited. The Senate couldn't just like take a bill and hold it indefinitely. Like after a set amount of time, it had to either offer an amendment or not. If it doesn't, then the bill goes to the to the president. And if it does offer an amendment that it votes on, it goes to a conference committee, probably consisting of like, you know, let's say 20 members, 10 from the House, 10 from the Senate. And the conference committee has to come to an agreement. Um, and I, I guess as, I, as I've been thinking about this more, if the conference committee cannot come to an agreement on the amendment, then the amendment just dies and the bill passes unamended, right? Sort of like at every step, I don't want the Senate to be able to, to block something. I, I, I do think that if the House deliberates um, and, and produces a bill, like that bill probably should, you know. Yeah, there, 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 there's some like the immediate rejoinder is like, what about House Republicans? I, I this is a bit of an, a belief I can't prove, but I do think that when you start when lawmakers are playing with live rounds, they behave differently. And this is, I think, part of the problem in government in the last 20 years is the extent to which no one's been playing with live rounds. That all these veto points create this world where everyone knows this is play acting. Um, right now in the states, like obviously you have some you know, buck wild states that are really going for it with abortion restrictions. But you have other places that are kind of like, I don't know how far we want to go because now we're not just like doing messaging bills right now. Now there's no, there's no court that's going to stop us. So how far do we want to go with this? And I think that dynamic would assert itself at a federal level if you kind of got rid of this one veto point. And ultimately the president's still there to veto a bill too. So if the president's like, I think this is a bad idea, then veto. And I would probably like get rid of the, get rid of veto overrides as I think about it. Like I would probably sort of like, that's like the check. Like the president can just veto something absolutely. And, you know, the house would have to like reformulate it, but they can't override the veto. Yeah. The, this is great. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. 
I was going to say that this is all great, Jamal. And I think it's important to connect two things for the, the leftist audience that we have, because I think a lot of people initially are thinking, who cares what the founders think? You know, settler colonialism, slavery, all the true historical oppressions. Uh, why should we care what these dead white guys think? Um, and similarly, they're, they're thinking, okay, maybe these changes would be great, but that's pie in the sky. And yet I think there's a connection between why we need to take seriously our history and these institutions and the powers they have and the justification theoretically for the institutions as they were constructed because the right does that. And that's part of how the right papers over and justifies all the things they do politically. Right. And the left, I think the argument goes needs to be in the contestation field theoretically for why self-governance in this country with these institutions should change things towards these emancipatory goals that we have with the kinds of proposals you're making. And so I think there's a connection between the pragmatic uh, possibility of these changes happening and the need to draw on our history to create a narrative that fits the, the left's narrative instead of uh, the evil American empire should, we should just ignore everything about our, you know, documents and our institutions, right? Like, isn't there a connection that, that you're making between the necessity for examining the history and talking about these institutions in a way that gives us possibility rather than just the simple kind of easy, uh, condemnation of our history and our institutions? Yeah. No, I, and I'm, I'm like totally willing to stipulate all the bad stuff. Like, <laughs> I'm not someone yeah, right? who's going to be like, yeah, yeah, we got to look for the good in Thomas Jefferson. Like, yeah, sure. I mean, there's good things about him. I think, I think the guy gets credit for the Declaration of Independence, no doubt. But like, he was not, you know, even by the standards of his like class, he was like not the best guy in the world. So stipulated that all these people are deeply flawed, ranging from sort of like, you know, not great to actively terrible. Um, I still think it's worthwhile. I mean, we, this, this is the country we live in. We live in the United States. We live in a country with a long and healthy tradition of constitution worship. We live in a country that, uh, continues to venerate its founders, um, that has this sort of like strong and quite thick civic religion that is actually appealing to a lot of people. And we live in a country where the political right has been very adept at sort of like using that history and using that civic religion and all these things to, essentially propagandize against democratic participation, against democracy, against the kinds of values that uh, people on the left have. And so I think it's worthwhile to try to craft a counter narrative, especially since the ingredients and the tools are already there. Um, I think that's just been, I've been kind of like, uh, I kind of like in my reading, I kind of like flip between either basically sort of like the 1790s to the 1820s or like the 1840s and 1850s. Like those are the two periods of time I find really interesting because they're just, there's so much in flux, like so much is taking shape. Um, and I find them very like, you know, rich periods of, of American history to study kind of the, the, uh, the last chunk of the 19th century as well, last 10 years. Um, but I've been really taken. With this biography, I'm reading of Salmon P. Chase, Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, then uh, after that, uh, Chief Justice Supreme Court. But kind of he makes his name as probably the most um, well-known, next to William Seward, the well-known political anti-slavery guy, Liberty Party guy, Free Soil Party guy, kind of known for for being in that milieu of politics. And... um one thing that the, the anti-slavery politicians do, and they spend, you know, decades doing it, abolitionists, or at least like the, the politically minded abolitionists and the, the ones against garrison join in on is they take all this material from the founding and they fashion it into an anti-slavery vision of the declaration, an anti-slavery vision of the constitution. And like, the the academic part of me is sort of like I'm not really sure if they're right about that, but the the person thinking about this in terms of politics is like no, this is actually the exact thing they should have done, right? Sort of connecting their crusade to the founding and making a strong case that it is in fact the slave power, it is in fact their opponents who are kind of corrupting the nature of what the American Republic is. And I actually think that both in sort of a, both in kind of the symbolic sense of like, we should be doing this kind of thing, but also in the literal kind of arguments that they made, I think there's a lot to learn from that. A lot of learn, a lot to learn from a vision of the constitution as not just being for freedom, but being against 
hierarchy for being against domination, right? Um, you've seen some of this kind of bubble up in the post Dobbs, uh, discourse. Um, I think Peggy Cooper Davis is the, is the legal academic, uh, who wrote a book back in the nineties about this stuff. But there's been other legal academics who've been like touching on this, which is that the, the claim from Alito and the conservatives on the court that, you know, abortion and reproductive rights broadly aren't really deeply rooted in the history of the United States, whatever the stupid phrase is, um, is belied by the circumstances behind the passage of the 13th and 14th Amendments, which were very much shaped and informed by the kind of pervasive and profound familial and sexual violence of slavery. Like, this this is like a whole separate conversation, but it's striking to me that in the public, in our contemporary public memory of slavery, we tend to act as if people then weren't kind of aware of what of what was going down south. But like people knew, um, you know, from escaped slaves and their narratives, from works of fiction like, you know, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, from, uh, you know, agitation from anti-slavery activists uh, who, you know, circulated this agitation in speeches and in literature. But like there was there was a there was a, a knowledge among Americans in the North and in the South, obviously, that like slavery wasn't just people working on fields. It was sort of like an organized system of sexual violence. And the people who wrote these amendments knew that slavery was an organized system of sexual violence and sort of part of what the goal of restore of like of ending slavery and kind of like creating rights or protecting the rights of free blacks included was kind of just bodily autonomy because this, because slavery was by definition, you know, an assault on bodily autonomy. And so right here in the constitution, in this like particular founding moment of, of the post-war reconstruction era, you have, I think the big, you have the groundwork for a jurisprudence of bodily autonomy um, that can stand up. I think, I think pound for pound with whatever conservative uh, conservative narrative is out there to say that no, the constitution actually, you know, in, in outlawing slavery, the constitution protects the bodily autonomy of all Americans. Because what, what do you describe? What, what is the state forcing you to do something with your body you do not want to do? Forcing you to carry a child against your will, forcing you to undergo dangerous medical procedures against your will. What is that? That's slavery. Um, and the constitution prohibits that. And that's the kind of arguments I think we need to be making, right? Like kind of looking at the constitution and saying, these are these broad principles that are there. There's a great book that just came out, the anti-oligarchy constitution, which takes this tact with regards to, you know, concentrations of wealth and whatever. Um, that the constitution, the men who wrote the constitution, uh, they had all these concerns that in w- one way or another, kind of addressed by the text of the constitution, or if it isn't, opens room for possibilities and, and interpretation. And we should run with it. Um, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should always, of course, stipulate the, the, uh, really awful and evil stuff this country has done. But in terms of making political arguments to a broad public, um, I think you're allowed to put that on the back burner. I think you're allowed to do that. I think you're allowed to, 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 uh, embrace the good and kind of just like put forth a constitutional argument and not let the right claim the constitution say that they're the they're constitutional conservatives like yeah first right. of all first of all you're and, not <laughs> yeah um it's like and for them to define that that freedom is domination for them to say actually this is what freedom means or right. you know or or what equality means because they want to take the mantle of all these principles too right and I, it reminds me for some of my students who um who are against, say, the welfare state because they say that, uh, well, there's fraud and there's all these problems. And I just say, okay, I'm going to stipulate whatever you're saying administratively that might be the case. That is not an argument against the purpose and ideal of helping people and the function of the welfare state. You're talking about administrative problems, okay? Uh, but if you use any historical problems with the praxis, the political realities as a way to undermine the principles, then you get in big trouble, right? Then you're unmoored. And I, and I think we need to reclaim on the left that freedom, democracy, equality, these are all things that if we do it 
uh, in the way that we say needs to be done in a non-domination kind of way, that is the realization of the declaration, right? That That is not the perversion of it, which so many people historically have done, I think, right? Right, right. And also just on sort of like a crass, like, you know, everyday politics level, I, I one thing I think the uh, Donald Trump specifically and kind of the Trump Republican Party has done actually quite well is kind of paint this image of like of liberty as like of a kind of like patriarchal domination, which appeals to a lot of people sort of like I can be, you know, I can be the man of the household. I can be the the successful homesteader kind of thing. There's this ad from the 2020 election from Trump. It's like a Spanish language ad, but it sort of it has like, you know, sort of like a family traditional family unit. They're all Hispanic, but like people are working, buying a house. Like this is the kind of thing that appeals to a lot of people. Um, but you know, I think there's a way to, to co-op that if not co-op that then like put forth an alternative thing, which is like, yes, those things are great. Not going to contest that. But like, do you want to be dominated by a boss? Do you want to be dominated by these faceless corporations? Like there's all this, all this, domination that occurs in your life that robs you of the ability to feel free what they're offering is kind of an illusion of freedom that if you just kind of like shut up and obey then you'll be able to at least like have a home and be able to hoard your stuff um and that's just like don't you want kind of like the freedom that comes with actually being secure in your person and actually being able to stand up to all of these people all these institutions that um want nothing to, to more to keep you down. Right. And I think, I think that's, that's a message that can appeal to people. Um, especially the, the groups of people that seem to be moving away from the Democrats. Like, you know, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna be the, the, the friendly, normal people who, you know, manage things well. It doesn't appeal to anyone, but like, <laughs> Yeah, but like we're going to kick Comcast in the fucking face. That <laughs> there you does. go. Now you're talking. Well, because the, the neoliberals, right, are actually offering a different interpretation of freedom, which is neither domination nor non-domination, but tokenism and the kind of like, you know, the CIA can can have or we can paint Black Lives Matter in the street or the, or the CIA can be woke. And, and you know what I mean? And like Chick-fil-A uh, honors it? or LGBTQ yeah. associates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just going to virtue signal, and that, that's what the part. We're the party of uh, you know symbolism. So uh, I think it's pretty clear what I mean. This is the the irony is actually helping people will be popular if you do it right. Right, uh, and, and I think if you if you if you if you connect it to a narrative, right? Like this is mm-hmm. uh, yeah. this is sort of like the. I feel like it's easy to go back to FDR, but this is actually kind of the political genius of kind of the direct aid part to the New Deal, that it wasn't just we're going to give you help. It was connected to a larger narrative of what that help is and how that relates to you as a citizen, right? Like we're going to give you a job, not because we think you need a handout, but because to kind of stand up on your own and be someone, you need to have the opportunity to work. Um, And I think... I just think that, I think that, uh, uh, Democrats at the very least, many of them have just like lost, if they even had this way of talking, um, and uh, of relating to people. Part of it is because I think it's like, it's a very aggressive and partisan way of going about things. And that just seems to not be kind of in the, the mode of a lot of the, uh, folks who, who lead the Democratic party. But I also do think it's, it's sort of tied to a, um, I don't know. It seems, it seems to be tied to like a conception of politics and a conception. I'll put it this way. I think it's tied to a like firm idea of what your end state is that I'm not sure that the institutional democratic party has. Like what is, what is kind of, you know, let's say you win the next four elections, national elections. You have like, let's, let's say you have like like the Reagan Republicans 12 years of uninterrupted control of national government like what what do you want at the end of that and i'm not sure that the national institutional democratic party has an answer to that question and that kind of I remember tri- the answer Jamel jo- Joe Biden was nothing will fundamentally change right. that was Joe Biden's answer <laughs> yeah they they want the same people the to be in power at the end of the 12 years. We're going to get immortality treatments for, for Nancy Pelosi <laughs> right, and right. Biden. Um, but to, 
maybe to to return to um you're talking about the reconstruction amendments and uh you know constitutional interpretation and stuff and and i and i'm i'm on the same page with you in terms of the original constitution you know that it's like uh, pretty flawed uh you could sort of make an argument that it that it it had like some egalitarian elements to it but like it it, it was there's some pretty seamy compromises in there but when you get to the reconstruction amendments you know for 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 reasons i guess which which are which makes sense to me but are are nevertheless um you know unfair you know when people talk about the framers of the constitution they never talk about John Bingham, the right. guy who wrote the 14th Amendment. I mean, here's a constitutional framer, and I would say arguably the most important one when it comes to contemporary discussions about rights and privileges and whatnot. Uh, you know, the 14th Amendment is like central to all of this constitutional litigation and stuff, you know, like the Roe versus Wade and, and, um, uh, the, the right to contraception and, and all that, uh, business. Um, you know, Bingham in his day, he, he thought that this was something that was meant to empower Congress, not the Supreme Court. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out, but he was a really egalitarian guy. He was like a critic, a critic of the, of the Constitution and, and, uh, the, the compromises with slavery. But he argued that it, it, it was, you know, uh, redeemable. And he did, in fact, redeem it himself, you know, putting the great, big, huge, new uh, sweeping powers in the hands of Congress, getting rid of slavery. Um, he didn't write the 13th Amendment, of course, but like as part of this package, you know, we have like another group of framers, you know, of this document, people who, you know, you could theoretically imagine setting up a sort of like cult worship or at least a little bit of a hero <laughs> complex to be like this is our boy john bingham the we all know him we all love him you know and yet nobody really talks about this guy uh, uh on the democrats or or in the republicans and i think it's like a sort of weapon lying on the ground waiting to be used you know to be like well look this you know this guy is just like james madison uh he wrote the founding document. And so, you know, we have to look. And it, it is funny also as a final point that the originalists, they never talk about what John Bingham thought about things, you know, and, uh, uh, it, it, it speaks to, you know, the cramped vision of, of those guys, but also, you know, the lack of attention to, uh, uh, our own history on, on the left and among liberals. Yeah. I, 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 I 100% agree. I mean, the entire, you know, the, the reconstruction congresses, um, are a, a a rich resource for thinking about you know but what what those amendments mean, but also sort of like crafting an alternative uh, narrative of what the Constitution is. I mean, I you know for my part, for as much time as I, I do spend with the OG founders, for my part, like the Constitution we have is the one that was like ratified with the Fifteenth Amendment, right? That's the Constitution. Like that's that's everything after that builds on that constitutional foundation. That the the Founders' Constitution, um, I mean, you can make a case that the Founders' Constitution like died after twenty years, but if you don't want to make that case, the Founders' Constitution was dead when. Uh, when the shots were fired in Fort Sumter, when yeah, that happened failed at that point, yeah, that, that, that's when it died. And there is still some value in thinking through what the founders and the framers were trying to do, what the ratifiers thought they were trying to do. There's value in kind of engaging with the thought uh, of all these guys, I think it's practical politicians in the 1790s and 1800s, um, of how they, you know, once the constitution was in effect, were interpreting the constitution, but, I think their ideas and interpretations have, uh, beyond the most abstract ones, have limits for the simple reason that once those, once, once those guns opened up on Fort Sumter, their project died. And so the what constitution we have is the one that comes out of the Civil War. It's the one that comes out of the decades of agitation by abolitionists, by black activists, by uh, temperance activists by, by all these people, right? Um, who were agitating for a more egalitarian society and for whom the civil war and its aftermath became the great opportunity to make their imprint on the governing document of the country. That's the constitution we have. And so I think we should just be much more attuned to those people in our like narratives of the constitution. Um, 
and much more attuned to their i mean we shouldn't be we shouldn't be bound by the intentions of the long dead people but if we're gonna be thinking about the intentions of long dead people then you're right ryan right like john bingham's egalitarianism um thaddeus stevens's sort of like you know belief in like radical wealth redistribution i mean these things do matter um quite a bit and if you if you i'll i'll say as well that if you agree with the idea that there are such things as informal amendments to the constitution that essentially become part of the constitutional um firmament then i think you should extend this thinking to the 1930s right sort of like the 1930s or a time when kind of the country has to fundamentally rethink what it is. Like, what does democracy actually mean and self-government actually mean in a world of industrial capitalism and a world where the state can accumulate so much power and when, it, when non-state entities can accumulate so much power? And, you know, guys like uh, uh, Robert Wagner <laughs> had, like, answers um, that became an important part of how we think about the American government. Uh, and... Um, you know, we should pay attention to that. And we should pay attention to all the people who may not be brand names, but nonetheless, um, were part of uh, all these struggles and all these fights. Uh, that should shape our sense of what the Constitution is. I still think it's important to lay a claim on the framers and the founders just for like basically kind of like political reasons, right? Sort of, I really, I, I really do not think we we, we should let the rights be able to sort of like, you know, claim a Jeffrey, a Jefferson, um, as terror, as, as, as terrible as Jefferson was like his political enemies were like, yeah, that guy wants the French revolution in the United States. And I think there's something there to work with <laughs> in terms yeah, totally. of like yeah. utilizing, yeah. um, utilizing Jefferson. So I, I, I strongly believe that like, you cannot let the right, um, uh, claim this stuff, I feel like half of what I'm doing with my column is basically trying to be like, you know, uh, a kind of originalist, but from the left to kind of just like kind of stake out a space <laughs> nice. of being like, I'm a person who cares about this stuff a lot, but I don't care about it from a perspective of founder worship. I care about it from a perspective of like useful ideas and, you know, staking a claim on these people um, uh, for the cause of more democracy or at least like more robust self-government. Um, yeah. yeah. Washington voluntarily stepped down and everyone was like, wow. You know I mean? That was such right. an important norm for <clears throat> more than a century. That right. I mean that you say now these it's, it's kind of shocking that no one's tried to bring that up in relation to Trump. To yeah. Just be like, <laughs> they should, they should. Yeah. They, they absolutely should. Sort of like, you know, there are a Republican Party that stands with Trump is a Republican Party that stands against George Washington, who did this kind of foundational thing, not just for American democracy, but for like literally for global democracy. Just, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's even more obvious when you think about the fact that the reason Washington was selected and even the purpose of the presidency, which at the time was like a figurehead position, the executive branch had very little power. They weren't supposed to get involved with policy. They were supposed to model what virtue looks like so that like the public stewards would, would model their excellences and virtues. And then you think about Trump who won't let go of the office and like the epitome of all these vices right. in contrast, right? Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing, but tell us more because I think in this project that you're uh, writing about, which is really, I think, important for the left, um, there's two things, right? The, the, the right doesn't necessarily need mass politics to dominate and entrench their hierarchies, right? And they could use the min minoritarian advantages of the constitution. The left in our history has needed the mass politics, but that has um, not just involved the, the many, uh, whether it's abolitionists or, or kind of social leaders, uh, but it also involves leadership from actual politicians and, and right. you know, statesmen. And, and, and you've written about the kind of, and talked about here a little bit, the lack of leadership today. I think this ties into the need for the narrative because our leaders need to know how to construct narratives to help that dialectic with the masses, right? To, to like FDR did to, to really make some of these things happen. Um, and I'm thinking about the Green New Deal because we've talked about FDR and the Green New Deal is another instance where like people will be empowered. Not only would you get a jobs guarantee, but it's got these federalist local politics elements like it's it's ripe for a narrative that that would appeal to all kinds.
kinds of people. And yet it gets polarized into like the commie ether where if you touch it, it's a third rail somehow. What, what, what do you think has been missing from the leadership uh, on the left? Yeah. I mean, as far as, as far as, um, as far as sort of like mainstream sort of like center left politicians, it's sort of, I think there's generally just been missing a, there's generally just been missing any kind of real and meaningful political leadership. I think that's struck me. And when I say political leadership, I'm trying to figure out, I need to, I need to be more, I need to be yeah, more precise about that. I, I, I think what it is, is figures who aren't just, who are, who are, cha- who are a- actively channeling some of the frustration and the dismay and the anger and even the hope that people have who can like look at the public or look at the, the, the public they've chosen to represent and kind of give voice to, um, the anxieties coursing through it and to turn those in, into sort of cause for action. A thing that I, I, uh, I was struck by, I think a lot of people were struck by it was like after the shooting down in Texas, um, uh, of the, at the elementary school. And there was that press conference with Greg Abbott and Beto O'Rourke, whatever you think of him, Beto right. O'Rourke went up to Abbott. It was just sort of like, you are lying. This is, yeah. this is bullshit. And people sort of like lost their minds in a good way over that display. And to me, that was just sort of like a clear example of how people are desperate for someone with power in a leadership position to just like say it to say I was right. on a similar note. I was watching um, uh, John Stewart's press conference after the Senate decided not to vote on that veteran bill. And I'm not the biggest John Stewart fan. I, sure, I, yeah, I yeah. No, I've written about this a long time ago, but I'm not a big fan of the guy, but he goes up on this podium and sort of like calls Pat Toomey a coward and sort of like really goes after these people. Cause Mitch McConnell yesterday flipped. I'm used to the lies. I'm used to the hypocrisy. Senator Pat Toomey won't take a meeting with the veterans groups. Sends out his chief of staff. I'm used to the cowardice. I've been here a long time. Senate's where accountability goes to die. These people don't care. They're never losing their jobs. They're never losing their health care. Pat Toomey didn't lose his job. He's walking away. God knows what kind of pot of gold he's stepping into to lobby this government to shit on more people. These people thought they could finally breathe. You think their struggles end because the PACT Act passes? All it means is they don't have to decide between their cancer drugs and their house. Their struggle continues. This bill does a lot more than just give us health care. Gives them health care, gives them benefits, lets them live. Keeps veterans from going homeless, keeps veterans from becoming addicts, keeps veterans from committing suicide. Senator Toomey's not going to hear that because he won't sit down with this man. Because he is a fucking coward you hear me a coward and i thought it was refreshing it was like this is this this display this channeling of people's dismay and anger and directing it at the people responsible is a powerful thing like i don't think that people want right joe biden to be like oh mitch mcconnell is my friend blah 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 i think what they want joe biden to say is like you know irrespective of our past relationship this guy is bad for the country and like if you if you if you stick with me we're going to do something about these people that are bad for the country and here's what i think we can do to improve the country um and there's just not very much of that right like i i think this is i mean this this to my to my mind was some of the the real power of Sanders's two campaigns, just like identifying people who are responsible and saying they're bad. I know they're bad. You know, they're bad and we need to do something about it. And I'm going to both like channel your frustration with those people and also give you like, you know, things you can do to, uh, to help fix this country. And there's just not, there's just not very much of that. Um, it's, uh, I used to be kind of baffled when I was younger at why, you know, why like boomers to use an overturned, overused, you know, 
label, but why boomers like lost their minds over JFK's inaugural address. But you, if you watch it today, you can kind of get it right. You sort of like, here's this young vital guy saying to the public that like, there are things we can do together and we're going to do them. Um, and that, that's just not like, I'll say this. It's not for Isn't nothing. Isn't this why Obama, Obama was such a disappointment for that very reason? Right, I was, I was like, literally just, got, yeah, okay, just okay. about that. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. We're all no, on no, the same please, wavelength. Please yeah, yeah. No, us, I mean, yeah, yeah. Obama kind of captured this and then kind of like was like, well, now it's time to, you know, be a responsible steward of the government. Um, and it was a wasted opportunity. I remember um, reading in his biography that just came out and um, in some other other accounts that, you know, when he is cruising to nomination and everyone thinks he's going to win because the Republicans are in disarray. George Bush is like 25 percent popularity, um, you know, and they're dealing with the crisis. Uh, basically, the Republicans, uh, Bush has checked out. And so Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, lifelong Republican and former head of Goldman Sachs, comes to Obama hat in hand is like, we need your votes to get this uh, tarp bailout through because Republicans aren't going to vote for it. And Democrats have the majority anyway. And Obama just gives him everything he wants. He thought, and he says in his book that being responsible meant doing the, the, the wrong thing, basically that, that like giving Hank Paulson, whatever he needed and not using this tremendous amount of power. And, you know, for for all that the Democratic Party is sort of feckless, I kind of think that if if, if uh, Obama were in charge, if he if his presidency were now and you were faced with a similar uh, sequence of events, I don't think he would do that. So there there there's been some ideological work done in the party and it's moved cons- very considerably to the left. But it, it still struck me as just an incredible dereliction of duty that 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 just being magnanimous to a conservative Wall Street banker, you know, who is wants a blank check for the for the banks who just blew the economy up was just staggering, staggering. There's this thing. Um, uh, who who made this point? Um, uh, Gabe Winant. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah I'm going to. Uh, so. Yeah. Um, Gabe Winant on Twitter um, made this point, uh, and that is there's sort of like a among a, a generation of Democrats, a set of Democrats. Some of this is generations, some of this is ideological. Um, but there's like almost a belief that you can kind of manage the conflict out of American politics, right? You can kind yeah. of like you can kind of come to some great broad consensus um, that would kind of uh, 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 suppress sort of class conflict suppress sort of partisan conflict and kind of have something, if not harmonious and sort of like orderly. And I think it's that even more than just like ideology, like in terms of moderate Democrats, liberal Democrats or whatever, that is the issue. Like you can imagine, right. A set of ideologically moderate Democrats who are nonetheless extremely hard nosed partisans who are interested in sort of like winning political conflict, right? Like those to the, the, the aversion to conflict and ideology don't necessarily have to go together. And for my part, if that was what we had, right? Like I would still be dissatisfied with the scope of their vision, but at least sort of like a fighting democratic party <laughs> would That's be. Right. No, but, but it's, yeah, it's because it's causally the other way around. The reason they're moderate is because they want the bipartisanship, which is the agreement that the elites are in charge and they'll right. work it out. Right. right. And that you guys don't worry about the conflict or any of your actual interests conflicting. We'll, we'll hash it out and then you'll be happy. Okay. Just be happy with what we work out. Right. And that's why they're moderate. It's not because they're committed in principle to any particular, you know, range of outcomes. Exactly. And so it's sort of like, that that's um the 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 challenge in terms of kind of shaping the democratic party is showing these people that there there's there's no politics there's no even like success for you without 
conflict and without sort of like actually leaning into the fact that there are conflicting values among Americans. And one of them actually does have to win out, even if it's a temporary victory, right? Like nothing's forever, but something does have to come out on top. And if you're not going to lean into that conflict, then your opponents are going to be the ones who come out on top and embracing conflict as an organizing principle of politics, I think leads you to certain conclusions. It's sort of, for example, how do you maintain, how, how do you um, not generate the conflict, but how do you sort of like uh, manage and shape the conflict? Will you do so through institutional partners, through movements and sort of thing? It kind of like, it, it, I think, I think, it, I think it necessarily leads you to saying, you know, Republicans have their evangelicals. Who do we have? Well, we should have labor. That's sort of like yeah. that's those should be our partners in terms of sort of structuring the conflict and providing a narrative around the conflict for ordinary people. Um, and I think I think the I, I don't think I don't think the Democratic turn from labor is like some result of this like conflict aversion. I think it's the result of kind of like very material things happening in the economy and among elites and then the Democratic Party. But I think that one one kind of product of that turn away from labor is this turn towards sort of like a hope for like a, a politics without conflict. Um, uh, uh, sort of a, a politics of sort of like frictionless consumers um, versus a politics of labor, which necessarily a politics of conflict. Um, yeah. As um, you, you just brought up the last thing or, or this leads directly into the last thing I w- uh, wanted to, uh, ask you about in our last few minutes here, which was this, you had a column about this third party that Andrew Yang wants to set up, which is exactly the same sort of weenie anti-politics. Why can't we all just get along? You know, it's something that's been around for a long time. The progressive era had tons of this. Um, but you, you had a good bit of history in there, uh, in classic Jamel Bowie fashion, um, about the free soil party in the 1850s. So, can, and, and th- can you tell us, about this and specifically like the light it sheds on the, the frequent desire among a lot of people, uh, a lot of lefties, uh, sometimes too for a third party. How did that work? And, and, um, what can we learn from it? Sure. Yeah. So the column, um, I kind of make two, two points that are related to each other. The first is that there are real structural constraints in the formation of third parties in the United States. It's just sort of like, that's just kind of how it is that, um, to really oversimplify it, because we have, you know, single member districts, because we have plurality voting, meaning just the first person who gets the most votes wins, not necessarily a majority. And because we have the electoral college and the presidency, which kind of really structures politics in a huge way, the, all the natural pressures are towards two parties. Like even there are countries like Canada that have first past the post voting and single member districts. Uh, but don't necessarily have only two parties, but they also don't have the presidency. And the presidency, I think, is like a major thing that structures all of this towards the two party system. So third parties kind of are just at this profound disadvantage, even before you get to the fact that, you know, the major parties control ballot access and all these other things. Um, but that's not to say that third parties can't be successful. Just what you, what we mean by success has changed and successful third parties in the United States have been those that basically have like integrated themselves into the two party system in like a profound way. And so I talk about the free soil party, which kind of is like the most successful example of this and that like it literally becomes the basis for one of the two parties. Um, free soil party grows out of the Liberty Party, which is sort of a more religiously inflected, um, anti-slavery party, kind of not quite pro-black equality, but like many Liberty Party members are for black equality, kind of like a very, a very ideological third party that, uh, arguably taught throws the 1844 election to the Democrats against the Whigs. And so kind of that kind of contributes to its decline in the wake of that election. Um, and in the wake of the Mexican American war, under James K. Polk and the annexation of Texas and the Treaty of uh, uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo, which brings in California and New Mexico and all this territory into the United States. Um, and, and conflicts over this, right? Cause slaveholders want to just like expand slavery further west. A bunch of former Liberty Party members plus, um, what are called, uh, free Democrats, sort of like anti-slavery Democrats, also barn burner Democrats in New York who are anti-slavery Democrats. Uh, and then conscience Whigs 
who are Whig Party members who are like very anti-slavery, typically in the North, come together to form the Free Soil Party dedicated essentially to stopping the expansion of slavery into free soil. And the Free Soil Party, and part of the the the, the Yang four party nonsense that they're like, you know, there's a Americans want a moderate centrist party. But you look at the story of the Free Soil Party and other third parties as well, successful ones. And what you see is a party that is not as narrow as a Liberty Party, but still very ideologically focused on this one thing. We're going to keep slavery out of free territory. We're going to attempt to polarize the electorate along these this issue and kind of force the two parties to reckon, reckon with this as a major concern. And it ends up working. I mean, it's it sort of, I say in the column, it's arguably the beginning of um, uh, mass political anti-slavery, sort of like you have free soil parties in New England electing members to Congress. You have them playing kingmaker roles in state legislatures in places like Ohio. Um, and you have kind of after the election of 1852, when the Whig Party kind of just completely exhausts itself. Um, unable to handle the pressures of slavery and the conflict over slavery. The Free Soil Party becomes the, the foundation for this new Republican Party that unites even more anti-slavery politicians and voters into kind of a single umbrella um, political party. And I think that I think that when thinking about third parties in the present, I think that the lesson of the Free Soil Party kind of stipulating the the institutional constraints and the structural constraints to, to more meaningful third party organizations is that you actually have to have you, you you have to you have to speak to issues that divide people you have to actually polarize people to get any traction because it's through that it's through that polarization that you can kind of reveal a new set of concerns um that are present in the electorate and kind of create um a new kind of voting base that then becomes something that can influence one of the two parties. And that's, this is not, not what you're seeing with this forward party thing. But if, if you're thinking about like from the left, like, you know, how can we disrupt the party system beyond pursuing structural reforms to American elections, like multi-member districts and approval voting and that kind of thing. Um, it, 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 I think it might just be towards the formation of a party that is like singularly focused on some major issue neglected by the two existing parties. Um, whether that is like, you know, income inequality, right? Like whether it's like reproductive autonomy, which I think is actually something that is like ripe for that kind of disruption. Um, whatever it is, um, that kind of narrow focus can help clarify where the electorate stands and provide the basis for something. That's awesome. I, I just have one more question if you have time, if that's cool. Oh, yeah, of course. We've been asking, um, like we had Nikhil Saval, we asked him this, and you know, it's in response to the Democrats' uh, lack of vision and leadership uh, amidst all these crises and all these calamities with the reactionary right doing their thing, uh, because all you hear is just vote harder. Basically, right. All you hear is just, you know, just keep voting. We won't promise anything. We don't just vote. That's all you can do for people that, that just feel like they want to get involved, want to do something, but that's all they hear. What alternatives to vote harder are, are out there? Do you think what, what can we tell people instead of vote harder? So I don't know. I mean, I have no idea how, how, how listeners will take this, but I'm sort of of the view that, um, at the moment, at this particular moment, there's kind of only like one viable vehicle for kind of like uh, politically uh, challenging the Republican Party through formal political institutions. I think there's lots of stuff on, on a movement level one can do, right? Sort of like the labor movement, the, 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 to the extent that that's like either growing or becoming more militant. I think that's a vital um, thing to be a part of. But if you're not connected to the labor movement, if you're not connected to sort of like movements for reproductive justice or, you know, uh, for, for racial justice, one thing you can do is just to sort of like stage a hostile takeover of your local democratic party. Like, I think, <laughs> I think that's, that's sort of, that's, that's the thing to do, right? Like outside, I think, I think, I think one discussion of this is somewhat distorted by the fact that so many people in like the world of political commentary live in major cities. But once you like step outside major cities, like I live in Virginia, and the Charlottesville Democratic Party, which is not a small Democratic Party, is maybe like 20 people who show up at the meetings on a regular basis, right? So it is like totally conceivable to get 20 people to show up and like 
stage a hostile takeover. Like that's in a lot of places, especially in states where the Democratic Party is quite moribund. It is very possible to um, uh, build power and influence from the ground up, right? And to begin to shape that. shape the party from the ground up, um, because ultimately, it's sort of like the people in Washington are connected to these state parties, like connected to these state party organizations, and aren't you know in rare cases cannot be fully severed from them. Um, so I think I think I think it's not it's it's like it's like vote. It's a form of vote harder, but it's like more like vote harder against Democrats in circumstances where doing so uh, doesn't help Republicans. Right. Sort of like um, uh, uh, capturing, you know, wresting control of a of a local or city or state Democratic Party from like the often very moribund establishment. Um uh, is uh, can pay dividends, right? People can be the leaders instead of just waiting for leadership from up top. Right, we can take leadership roles ourselves in our communities. That's and awesome. I, I, I'm thinking about Virginia again here as well. So back in twenty the 2017 race when when Ralph Northam won, sort of like Ralph Northam's at the top of the ticket, not like a very exciting person. But what was noteworthy about that race was the extent to which sort of like an infusion of new energy, kind of new anti-Trump energy led to something that had really never happened before, which is like the state democratic party, um, running candidates everywhere, right? Like running candidates everywhere. And that ends up shaping, uh, the agenda of like the Northam administration. And I think, I think there's a lot, I think the North administration is ends up being much more progressive than it had any reason to. And part of that is just sort of like the extent to which there's this bottom up pressure, from Virginians, from like liberal Virginians to make use of the power they had to push against sort of like the go along, the get along energy that typically runs things in Richmond. Um, that's sort of like, it's like on the one hand, that's not political revolution. Right. And that's like kind of disappointing. Um, on the other hand, you know, political 50 years separates kind of the Trump Republican party from like the, you know, Nixon Republican party. And although there are many continuities, there are also important breaks between those two iterations of the Republican party. And there's no guarantee, right. In 1968, um, that the kind of, you know, not moderate, but kind of like not net hyper ideological Republicanism was going to like be the thing, um, that died out over the next couple decades. Like that was a live question. And it took, it was sort of like the transformation of the Republican party from being still kind of like a moderate brokerage party of various factions to like a hard nose right wing radical party is the story of lots of small transformations over time. Lots of small victories over time that culminate in breakthroughs, right? Kind of like that lay the stage for breakthroughs. You know, Trump is the nominee and he's totally disconnected from the party. And you have this kind of like right wing evangelical um, cadre that can take advantage of that and can like, you know, take advantage of these circumstances to move the party even closer to their direction. And sort of that's kind of that's a long project. But I think I think that's feasible for the um I think it's feasible for the Democratic Party. I don't think that's sort of like a thing that cannot be realized um but it's like very much it's like a grind over time um but part of that grind like i said is like getting 20 of your friends going to a local democratic party meeting and just being like it all matters being like i'm the captain now (laughs) (laughs) that's enticing And, and you and ryan have been doing the grind with the articles that you that you write because every little uh person and citizen that could be you know moved to go out there and, and do politics for for the cause uh is a win it all matters so i appreciate you both and uh and jamelia yeah, th- thanks for all you do and um it's been great great having you on here uh thanks for having me no real pleasure and thanks for listening everybody we'll see you in the next episode